You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a growing network of people who believe the center of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and that learning to take love seriously is vital for how we practice discipleship, mission, and leadership. The Gravity Leadership Podcast explores, in practical ways, how to root our lives and our leadership in this love that holds all of us and everything together. Hey friends, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. My name is Ben Sternke. His I'm name is Abby. Ben Sternke. Yes, call me by my name, not not by other not by other names. Um, and Matt, Matt, you're here as well. Yeah, welcome. I'll be I'm here. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, we are. This is the second week of our parenting series. Um, this has been fun, and uh, this is the second week of it. We are. Uh, there's an interview that we have coming up with Andrew Root. Uh, who wrote about um, the end of youth ministry and how it's all just coming to a, cr- a screeching halt? <laughs> so yeah, he's got great insights. Some yeah, research, does, yeah. some research he's done, and this book has produced other research. Really good. If you are, you know, it doesn't matter if you're sort of anti youth group or you love youth groups, maybe you're a youth pastor. This interview is vital. It's mm-hmm. vital. And uh, after this interview, um, somebody. As a response to this series, many of you are are emailing us or messaging us questions you have about parenting, and so we're going to answer yeah. one of those after the interview with Andrew today. Yeah, so stick around after the interview. We're going to answer a question about bum, 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 corporal punishment, <laughs> aka spanking. Oh yeah, yeah, that's yep. what that is. So we'll answer that question, and uh, we'll get anything else to say, Matt. <laughs> No, I, I just love Andrew Root, though. Guy's a yeah. baller. I love his writing, and after talking to him, I love mm-hmm. him even more. So enjoy. Yeah, enjoy the interview. Peace. Peace. Oh, hey, one more thing. I just thought of this. Oh, what? Um, this is normally our podcasts come out on Tuesday, and we do about one a week. Uh-huh. But, uh huh. But this is a special three weeks because do you want to know why? why Matt? 
No, the, no, this is a special three weeks because we are going to be releasing um, a, another series, kind of a series within a series alongside of our normal series mm-hmm. uh, on the pandemic. And we're going to interview, we've, we're interviewing Mike Frost. You guys heard of him? He's a author, Australian. He's got a great accent. So listen to that episode just for the accent. Mm -hmm. Um, We're going to be interviewing Beth Felker Jones, who Mm. has written a great book on pandemic prayers. She good. And we are going to be interviewing N.T. Wright, a.k.a. Tom Wright, um, who just wrote a new book about uh, God and the pandemic. So make sure you're subscribed. Those will come out on Thursdays uh, as we go. So. Yeah. Peace, friends. All right. So here's uh, Andrew Root. Uh, and again, stick around afterwards. We're going to answer a parenting question. Get ready. Andy Root, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be with you guys. Yep, it's good to talk to you. Will you? Uh, you do a lot of things with uh, Jesus and people, and so would you give a? Mm. <laughs> uh, would you give an introduction to our uh, <laughs> listeners who you are and what you spend your time doing? Well, I am a person, so that's uh, yeah, that's that's <laughs> good. Jesus and I'm and a people, person. Kind of that's right, it, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I and I do love Jesus and think Jesus is pretty important. So, um, yeah, so I live in the Twin Cities in uh, St. Paul, actually, because we think people in Minneapolis are snooty. So, wow. us uh, St. Paul yeah. people want want to make sure we, we're known as as uh, good working class St. Paul people. So, I uh-huh. teach at a seminary called Luther Seminary, but. Uh, yeah, I have two. I have two kids who, uh, and, and my wife is a Presbyterian pastor. So um, mm. yeah, we are in the middle of quarantine now, and we've hit week. I think we we are on shutdown week three or four, and uh, the the murder risk is pretty high in our house right now. We are all pretty <laughs> sick of each other. <laughs> we are all pretty sick of each other. So I have a twelve year old and a fifteen year old. So. As we talk about youth ministry and parenting and stuff, I'm in the middle of it, and I just have to confess right off the bat that I pretty much blow at it. So um, I'm not yeah. so good at it, especially right now in in, in this moment. So, oh, wow. but yeah, I, I write on ministry and theology, a lot of uh, youth ministry, obviously that this book is about, but uh, also pastoral ministry and thinking about the church in a secular age and, and things like that. So um, yeah, that's hmm. what I do, and I watch a lot of TV too, which also yeah. is um, very nice for this this quarantine uh, times i'm watching a lot of television so <laughs> um well andy we wanted to chat with you today about i think maybe your latest book which has a very provocative title uh and you don't usually pick titles authors don't pick titles the publishers do but this this book is entitled the end of youth ministry question mark and then and then the tagline is what why parents don't really care about youth groups and what youth workers should do about it and i guess my first question for you is uh it seems like this book is very much in line with your previous two books which which is like pastoring in a secular age and faith formation in a secular age and there's there's a sense in which this is sort of a youth ministry in a secular age book. How was it determined that this was going to be a, a standalone kind of book and not maybe volume three of your uh, faith in a secular age series? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, in, in, in a real way, you're exactly right that I, I kind of feel like this is the practical working out of faith formation in a secular age, maybe mm-hmm. um, though practically 
the practical working out, I get a little bit hesitant about because people are going to expect bullet points and like a plan of what to do in their church or what to do at home. And if you've read anything that I've written, unfortunately, to my shame, it's not always as um, plug and play as as I, as as I would probably make more money if it was. So that that's to, to my <laughs> to my detriment. Um, but uh, yeah, this in, in many ways is the kind of working out of that. It, there is a dialogue with the, the kind of social philosophy of Charles Taylor in this, more in the footnotes maybe than explicitly in faith formation. Yeah. But this is kind of thinking of, okay, what what would this look like inside of a youth group? Or maybe to turn the question a little bit is why is why does it feel like something's changed inside congregational life when it comes to youth ministry in the last Yes decade and a half or so. So it's really exploring that, but to be really quite honest and upfront, the reason it's not in that series is because this is part of a lot. It comes out of being in a grant, uh, Templeton grant at uh, the Yale Divinity oh. School that was looking at oh. joy and the good life and things like that. So I was the one who uh, drew the short straw and had to write the book <laughs> about adolescence and, and youth ministry as it comes <laughs> as it comes to joy. So so yeah. it fits within within that. So it's it's I a little see. bit of a of a I publishing see. thing, you know that that's in yeah. that line and in this other one. But it, it no no doubt it it kind of uh, relates to those other books um, and hopefully it's a little it. bit more practical. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's totally practical, and I want to get into some of the some of the cultural trends you name. Uh, but first, for those who are unfamiliar with your writing, I think a lot of people maybe are cultural commentators. A lot of people uh, write sort of with a therapeutic mindset. A lot of people write maybe just straight theology. And the pe- people who try to integrate the three, sometimes it comes off as like a like a, a che- cheeky mashup or like they're an amateur in two of the three areas. But you you have a unique focus and integration in your writing. How would you describe that? How you, it's kind of interdisciplinary. How do you, how do you self name what you're doing? Yeah, I, I don't know, actually. It's really hard for me. I feel like, uh, mm. it's a very nice compliment you said, but sometimes I feel like I am, uh, just not good enough at all of those things. You know what I mean? Like that I, I, I can, mm. I can maybe, uh, um, code switch with those or pretend enough, but you wonder sometimes if I serve no master and, you know, like I'm not really a systematic theologian, but I kind of do systematic theology. I'm not really a social scientist, but I'm read in, in, in social science. I'm not really a cultural philosopher, but I've read a lot of that cultural philosophy. So yeah. um, I guess for me, it is, it's really, it does always remain the kind of human lived phenomena becomes yes. really significant. Yes. And I have a, a certain, aversion towards easy answers towards things and tend to think things are really quite complicated and even just kind of r- really basic things are, are really quite complicated. So, mm. um, you know, everything, the, the Enneagram is everywhere, you know, um, mm-hmm. it's the, like the, the magic, the magic potion of our, of our age, but there is something to it for me. I'm a, I'm a five on the Enneagram. So I just can, I can, my, my danger is I can always get stuck in an idea and yep. I can just kind of start oh, to yeah. spin it. And then, um, I have the the one real gift I have is I can sit in one place for a long time, so I can read a lot and I can uh, I can write a lot because I can just sit in the same place for a long time. I don't know how I gain that skill, but I have it. <laughs> and so, uh, being someone who reads a lot and then has these ideas and has this certain normative commitment that things are complicated, it ends up bringing in a lot of conversations. Um, yeah. And and I'm probably my worst critic in. Uh, 
but I just have, I just hate things that seem simple or flat. And, and so it's been a, a kind of necessity to write things that, that I believe in enough. Um, mm-hmm. but then again, I'm also my worst critic. So, um, yeah. You know, so so it's not it's not a fun thing to be inside my head. And, well, and my my it drives my wife crazy. So all the uh, listeners out there can pray for her. So. Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's a fun thing to be on this side of your head. I just yeah. appreciate the way that you're able to hold. You give a historical perspective, a cultural analysis, a theological backbone, and you're not afraid to deal with philosophy and psychology as well. So I I just I, I find it really stirring and helpful because you are working from the ground up naming mm-hmm. what's what humans are experiencing and you ask the why question not from a not not from a, a very small frame but with using a lot of frames that gives a, a a harmony or maybe an orchestra of why is this happening and how do we understand it mm. uh, and so it's it's really helpful as it pertains to youth ministry and kids in this book you decided more than half the book is like a storied parable uh, which hmm. is a departure from your previous books. How did you decide to do that? Why, why did that become the device you wanted to use? I'm starting to use it more and more. And uh, part of it is, part, well, I mean, I guess it's two things. It's, it's methodological in the sense, like I said, there's a desire to to be on the ground, to be grounded and working yeah. up. And the other piece is I just always live in this deep insecurity that trying to weave these ideas together, that I'm going to lose the reader. And know that what the mm. reader cares about is these fleshy elements. But I don't want the fleshy elements just to be like, when I was in eleventh grade, I, you know, in, and tell some <laughs> analogy about myself. Yeah. I wanted to, I wanted <laughs> to have these kind of fleshy moments feed the ideas. And I think it's, I think a real challenge for someone trying to write theology that might be readable um, and maybe readable to say lay people or others who are listening to this is try to show them. I, I, what I want to do for the, the reader is not tell them, but show them. So if I, yeah. I felt like with these ideas, I wanted to show them in the, in the life of these, of these people. So um, it also allowed me to kind of you know, act like I was cool and say, Kierkegaard used to do this. No, I'm going to do this. <laughs> you know, like, so there, there's a little bit of, a, there's a little bit of arrogance and trying to be cool yeah. in it too. You know, a, a guy in his mid forties trying to be cool. So, hey. um, <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, guy, so, guy in his mid forties trying to be cool. Uh, my, my teenagers, uh, resemble that remark. Uh, yeah. anyway, yeah. Well, this is a safe place for hip dads. Right, right here. For failing hip dads, that's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and you talk about in this book. I mean, I was a youth pastor for uh, several years. Um, ben, did you ever do youth ministry? Uh, I briefly. So I I got hired. <laughs> did you get fired? <laughs> no, I got I got hired as a worship pastor, and then they f- they fired the church, fired the youth minister. Um, there was some shenanigans going on, and then uh, they were like, "Hey, we don't want to hire somebody just yet." do you want to take over this youth group? And uh, immediately my stomach just dropped. I was like, no, it's the last thing I want to do. And I feel like I did a terrible job, uh, but I'm actually still in touch with a lot of those kids. Oh, cool. So anyway, but uh, but I hated it. I really did not like youth <laughs> ministry at all. Yeah, well, so. uh, maybe for those of us who are listening who are youth pastors or, or were in youth groups and it was a positive thing, Andy, yeah. maybe, maybe the question is, uh, why would youth ministry be ending? What's yeah. threatening? What is threatening youth ministry as we know it? 
Yeah. So you're, you're totally right about the title. It's a complete like clickbait title, you know, uh, which was, what's the publisher? That's what you got to do these days to compete, right? You need clickbait to 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 compete. Exactly. So, so I added in the question mark. That was my contribution to the title. So that I, and and I just figured that no one could get mad at me. Like the end of the ministry, maybe, maybe Maybe not. I don't don't know. Like a shrug. So the larger argument of why youth ministry may be ending, and, what, and it's a little bit of a, a misnomer because at the end of the book, you'll see that I, I make a case for youth ministry to quite to continue. But um, what is ending, I think, is this sense that either kids have enough time or mm-hmm. parents value the youth group enough that it somehow rises to like the top three things the family does Yes, um, that you've got to get your kid there or simply kids just have time that they're going to, they're going to stumble in on a mm-hmm. Wednesday night or a Sunday mm-hmm. night and be like, yeah, youth group is a thing I do all the time. And I don't even think about it. And mm-hmm. so I'm trying to, to tell the story on why, why it feels, I think for a lot of youth workers and maybe on the other side for a lot of parents, like, you can give or take youth group. And yeah. even though you may not want to, even though if you were to sit down in some kind of vacuum space of what's most important for your kid, you would put confirmation or right. church involvement or youth group up there. But when it comes to your day-to-day life, all of a sudden you find that commitment sliding way down the list and all sorts of other things ahead of it, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. like almost even cleaning the cleaning your room becomes ahead of it in some ways. Oh, yeah. So, um, <laughs> so I wanted to kind of trace that story because when I talk to youth workers or even pastors, they will often mention that kind of existential crisis. Like, well, we just can't get kids involved or we just can't get parents to get middle middle school kids to actually be here. And, and I guess we just got to work harder. I guess we, I guess we just need, um, a better programmer, you know, diabolically, I guess we just need to fire this youth worker and hire <laughs> yeah, a more talented one, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so I'm trying to kind of show that, no, it's a much more complicated reality that's going on here. Um, a much deeper one that we need to look at. And we actually shouldn't feel shame for whether you're the youth worker or the pastor, you shouldn't feel shame for. And as an apparent when you start to see yourself maybe in some of the things I'm saying, my mm. hope is you don't feel bad about yourself, but it does lead you to ask, okay, well, what, what is this? And, and what, what value does this have? So the real question that drives the book is like, what is youth ministry really for? And yeah. that probably should have been the title of the book, but you know, that's not, it's too theoretical and academic. What is right, it exactly. for? Yes. Right. <laughs> yes. Youth ministry. What is it for? This podcast is brought to you by Gravity Leadership Academy, our 10-month online training intensive for Christian leaders who want to root their life and leadership in God's love and bring lasting transformation to their culture. In Gravity Leadership Academy, you'll learn the real-life practicalities of how to notice God's presence and activity in and around you so you can participate more fully in God's life and mission and open up space for those around you to do so too. We've worked really hard to make this training in missional leadership practical and doable. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com slash academy. Yeah, you talk in your book about there's there's kind of this unseen, unworded marketplace of the good. 
you know, marketplace of what we need. You, you call it the thing in the book, finding yeah. the thing for our kid, whether it's uh, my kid's a soccer mm. kid or my kid's an orchestra kid or my kid's an artist, those kinds of things. Why is it hard for youth ministry to compete in the marketplace of, quote, the good? Hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and I and I think that's the that that's the driving thing. The, the good that that is the kind of I'm trying to balance this. Which yeah, I maybe maybe to... maybe name, name what that is for us. Yeah. So I mean, I think there is something. I mean, I guess this gets to your your point about how anthropology and, and philosophy comes in for me. But I really do kind of lean on this sense that what it means to be a human being and how all human action is kind of framed is that we do have some kind of implicit or tacit, sometimes direct but often implicit sense of what is good or what makes our life full. And most human beings, I mean, like 99% of them are driven by this kind of sense of seeking what's good. They're trying to yes. do what's good. And there's a problem, I think, often when we feel like we're losing in the involvement of young people or all people in the church where we want to kind of turn on on parents or congregation members and be like, they're just making bad choices. Right. It's bad. <laughs> what they're doing is bad. And it's, mm-hmm. and I just don't think that's true. I think parents deciding to have their kid in AAU basketball and they're gone from the life of a worshiping community for six or eight months so that they can chase their dream to be a basketball player. Mm. They don't do that because they're bad parents. You know, they mm-hmm. do that because they think it's good. They, they, you know, it may be implicit and it may be misdirected. It may, we mm. may need to have a conversation about really what is a good life and what yes. provides mm-hmm. a good life. But we need to start with the respect that these people think that this is good for their kid and they're doing it because it's good for their kid. So my point is that we've had this kind of transition where mm. your job as a parent, if you're a middle class parent particularly, is your job is to kind of curate your kid's involvement in things to get towards the good. That you yes. want your kid to live a good life, but then it becomes yeah. your job to kind of curate their schedule, which is very different than like how my parents saw things in the 90s or <laughs> yeah. parents in the yeah. 80s. And like one of the examples I use in the book is like you watch Stranger Things. I mean, one of the uh-huh. funny, funny bits of Stranger Things is Mikey's parents, like Mr. and Mrs. Wheeler, they don't know what the bleep is going on. You know what I mean? <laughs> no. They have no idea. They have right. no idea that the kids are fighting trans-dimensional demigods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have yeah, no yeah. idea. <laughs> because they're actually, and, and we laugh as kind of, you know, here in 2015 but or you're 2020. Right. Yeah. The, the, our parents had no idea. We were down at the creek for six hours or you yes. know, building, a, building a dangerous fort in somebody's backyard that no parent should ever allow their kid to stand on, you know? Yeah. When I was six years old, I used to walk to a junkyard with my friends and pull yes. stuff back. And like my, my mom knew, <laughs> she didn't. That's, you know, that's how you yeah. raise kids, you know? And yeah. and so like Stranger Things, if it's a period piece and it's a period piece because it's trying to be, you know, homage to the Spielberg movies of that time. But it's also a period piece because it just simply couldn't work if it was set in 2018 mm. or something. Like yeah. there's no way Mikey could fight a demigod because he would have you know, six nights of traveling baseball and there'd be the cell phone that his mom would be tracking him the whole time. It's just a completely different kind of sense of parenting where Mm. 80s and 90s parents, to be a good parent, you gave your kids a lot of space to do whatever. You know, it was open space was a high good. Well, that's flipped for multiple reasons. And now to be a good parent is to be almost hyperly involved in your kid's life and to be there every step of the way. And one of the things you do is is get them involved in trying to find their thing. And one of the reasons I think that this happens and what drives it is that we've seen just an absolute escalation 
to, to just the exponential amount of identity options. Yes, like yes. when you were a kid in the 80s and 90s, and I'm not trying to be normative or pejorative about this and say that this was better, but one of the reasons like Breakfast Club was such a hit movie is because it was essentially every identity you could be in high school is represented in that detention right. hall on that Saturday morning, right? And there were like five or six of them. That was it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was it. And you could pick it. You could be the nerd. You could be the burnout. You could be the jock, but yeah. that was your that was your option. Yeah. And we now, for certain kind of moral reasons, we just don't believe that's true. We believe yeah. every individual has a right to define for themselves what their own identity is. So every person, the identity options escalate almost to the point of every person. Well, if you're a parent, oh my gosh, that's mm. you have no control over that really. And particularly mm. if you're a good parent, your kid, there's just the kind of the illusion that she goes into a room at 12, 13, 14, maybe watches some YouTube videos, but essentially comes out at some point and says, this is me. And that's the identity. And, and you as a parent really can't oppose that or you violate this thing that I call the the ethic of authenticity or is actually Charles yeah. Taylor's point. And you can't really violate that. You have to let your kid find out who they are. But the one thing you can do as a parent, particularly a middle-class parent with some kind of resources, is you can get your kid involved in a bunch of different things, as I call them, whether it's mm -hmm. soccer or debate or tutoring or the best piano teacher. And that hmm. thing can become a way you can impact their identity or at least ground their choice of identity. And so then yes. as a parent, it becomes you about scheduling them and getting them to all of these things. And youth ministry just can't compete with that. Youth no. ministry just can't compete with the goods of maybe you being a world-class tennis player. Um, right. You know, like if a parent has a choice, championship game of volleyball tournament, of state volleyball tournament, or confirmation class, the goods of volleyball seem to so outstrip volleyball yeah. class that there's just not a choice to be made there, you know? So I think it it's feels just obvious it, to the yes, parents, right? right? It yeah. feels absolutely obvious to them. Yes. Right. Yeah. And it's not because they're wicked or evil. No. It's because they're pursuing the good. They're pursuing a, a perceived good that's attached to, and you talk about this a lot in your book, identity formation. Um, maybe. Uh, because I know you've read about this and thought about it um, in a way that annoys your wife, we know, but it really uh, entertains us. So uh, <laughs> how has identity formation changed uh, in the modern era to become about what I'm good at, the thing that I can master, versus how was it in previous cultures, and, and why does that matter? Yeah. Well, I think in previous cultures, answering this question, who am I, was really not something that was on the forefront of your mind or that you yeah. pr particularly presumed yes. was your responsibility, that the, the community you existed in, the larger cultural realm that you existed in, for good and for ill, imposed that on you, you know? Um we tend not to live with these narratives, but you know, it used to be if you grew up in a village and your father was the village drunk, guess what your future was? Like you didn't get to <laughs> yeah. expressively decide, I am not this, I am not my father. You were kind of bound within that. So we mm -hmm. kind of lived with a very different sense of who you were and who you were connected to. Where mm -hmm. one of the, I think this is one of the advantages of the kind of post sixties world we live in is that a certain kind of romantic ethic gets embedded within us. That really comes through consumerism and things like that. Yes. But it does really say that every human being has a right to define for themselves, their legacy, their location, where they come from, shouldn't define who they can be in the future. 
So every individual has a right to define for themselves what it means for them to be human. And, yes. and that starts to kind of drip into our society. I mean, it really goes back to poets and, and um, writers and, you know, 18th, 19th century, but it kind of drips into our society um, into the 20th century, but it be, just becomes writ large um, after the war and particularly then after the late 60s, which is really a, a, a movement um, where this expressive romantic disposition just gets imposed upon um, society. Yeah, and in and my we, book, um, we typically yeah, go ahead. We, we typically, if we notice it, we think of it as a good thing. We're being freed. Yeah. We're being freed up from the tyranny of external forces telling us who we are, comporting to some external norm that doesn't that doesn't strike me as authentically me. And mm-hmm. we're freed. We're freed to sort of fill the vacuum of who am I with whatever you know bespoke bricolage of things I can stick on me to give me a, a persona. So we, we actually like celebrate that in our culture. Yeah, but absolutely. But, but you describe some of maybe some of the costs, the spiritual cost of that. I wonder yeah. if you could just talk about that for a little bit. Like what, what's the other side of the coin there? What, what is the cost of having that kind of identity formation? Well, there's, there's two costs. I mean, there's so many costs. Um, well, but first of all, I would say like, like you were just saying, there is real gains in that and we shouldn't, she wouldn't, yes. we shouldn't undersell those games. Right. You know, there were, there were per- people, particularly marginalized people who would be just excluded. Like your expression of what it means for you to be you just doesn't matter, which now um, almost sometimes overreach. We, we think that that's really important, but part yes. of the, part of the struggle now then becomes is you're responsible for your own identity. You, yeah. if you're yeah. 13, it's, it's up to you. <laughs> and so you need yeah. to kind of bear this. And part of the push then is that you need it, it all becomes about authenticity and authenticity as a sense of uniqueness. So now if you're 13, mm. 14 or you're 45 or 46, you wonder like, how am I being my unique self? And you can actually feel yeah. one of the, one of the lies of this whole move is that somehow we throw off those constraints of authority, like you were saying, and now we're free from outside authorities that put guilt on us. So we don't have to feel guilty because now you're authentically yourself. But it's actually boomerangs on us. It recoils on us and is worse. We now find ourselves more guilty and more anxious. But who we're guilty to is not a transcendent God with a law or with a with a word. We're guilty to ourselves. Yeah. If only you would have used your time better, mm. you you would actually be an authentic self. And you can see as a parent, you live under that absolute fear. Well, what if we decide not to have her be with this traveling sports team what if this coach is the wrong one and that coach is the right one what if she should learn mandarin instead of learning spanish and if you don't negotiate those things enough you undercut your child of living the most authentic life she can and she will therefore never be happy in the future which is a complete lie of course but you can see how much pressure that is because you need to now be alongside your kid to help her and the other the other point of this that I, i developed quite a bit in the book is that when authenticity and uniqueness is the highest good that gives you your identity, then what you need is recognition and you need people yes. to recognize it. See and so it. there's a validate see it. Absolutely. And so parents have to be near their kids at all times because you have to help your kids negotiate which things to be involved in. But even more importantly, you have to help them 
get recognition within it or shield them from the negative recognition that might come, you know, like yeah, you're not good enough injury. to be on the team. Yes, yeah. exactly. Like you're not good enough to be on the team. Well, that's because that coach just doesn't know anything or whatever, <laughs> you, whatever you might need to do, you know? And so right. it's no wonder that we see parents throwing punches at coaches at sporting <laughs> events all the time. There's, because there's a lot at stake. It, it's an incredible amount at stake. It's yes. not just like, will our team win the, B peewee hockey tournament it's does my kid have an identity that has any value and you're basically saying my kid is not unique and is not authentic and therefore you're saying my kid doesn't have value so i will punch you in the jaw for that yeah i mean it's it's all crazy stuff but it it fits within uh this kind of sense of identity being something you individually construct Andy, I don't know if you have uh, any reflections on this. We're recording this several, as we said in the intro, several weeks into Coronatide, uh, as we call it, where a lot of these activities, the things you call them, have been canceled. You can't yeah. go, you can't travel with the volleyball team. You can't, you can't do a lot of these things that kids have sort of attached their identities to. Adults have sort of, parents have, have tried to help their kids attach their identities to. I don't know if you have any reflections on, like, what do you think this is doing now? to uh, to families that have been sort of wrapped up in this and maybe not really reflectively thought about how their kids' identities are being shaped. Like what's what's happening in some of these situations? I don't know if you have thoughts yeah, about that. Yeah, I, I do. I mean, in in some sense, for I think for a small percentage of people, and God bless you if you are these people, and maybe you go in and out of, out of being them, but for some yeah. people, it's giving a release from the accelerated busyness that having to get your Mm. kid in all these things, like you can't do that now. So as a family, you do get to play games or like, I just watched a YouTube video this morning of the family that remade the journey video, you know, and I put them side (laughs) by side, um, which probably took them like 80 hours to do, you know, (laughs) but this family like remakes the whole video. And if you're those small percentage of people, like this is quite, beautiful but i think for most of us Mm. we don't know what to do with ourselves um and and kind of one of the ways of thinking about this and um in the third volume of the ministry in the secular age series which will be called the congregation in secular age i deal with this more than Mm. in this book but um there's this german theorist named hartmont rosa and one of the things rosa says is we've talked about the good life is he says us modern people are we're weird people because we still need a sense of the good but we tend not to know what a good life is in the moment that yes. our lives go so fast that the present is actually quite short. So we have hmm. really no sense of content for what the good life is now, but we do know there is a good life, but it's all projected into the future. So I you see. need to do all sorts of things to accrue resources and you get your kids involved in volleyball or choir or, or whatever, because it's a resource that will help them live the good life, not now, but in the future. So everything's projected yeah. into the future. So Rose has this beautiful line where he says, us modern people are like painters who keep buying brushes, keep arranging our paints, but we never <laughs> paint a picture. Like wow. we just keep preparing to paint a picture, but never paint yes. a picture. So what what potentially is the existential crisis of Coronatide, I think is what you called it, yeah. is yeah. that all of a sudden, not only do you have to stop all the things that were giving you some meaning or helping you accrue some value as a parent or your kid maybe have some identity but you don't even have a future anymore in other words like you don't know when it's coming back like you can't buy any more paint supplies you can't buy any more paint supplies you can't go out but you just 
are you going to get to finish volleyball season or, or not? Um, I mean, it, it goes so far as like, are freshmen going to move into their dorms in September or not? Yeah. And if you kind of have your meaning and you even have purpose in preparing for your own or your kid's dream state in the future, um, yeah. in the good life, it's all projected there. Now, in some ways, we're just kind of stuck with you. You've got what you've got now. And, um, mm. and I think it's pretty hard for modern people to feel like life is very meaningful and not kind of yeah. feel pulled in depression and maybe anxiety without being able to plan for not only the next week, but the next six months or next year. And then you hear a news story. It's be like, well, things won't really go back to normal until we find a vaccine. And that could right. be 12 to 18 months. And you're like, right. but wait, I've been, I've been trying to get my kid into Yale since they yeah. were, you know, yeah, yeah. in eighth grade. And now this is the big year and they have to go on this trip and that trip. Uh-huh. Who, who am I yeah. as a mom or um, <laughs> right. who's my kid? If we, if yeah. we can't do this, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah. So uh, as you, maybe, maybe as we uh, begin to wrap up here, Andy, like you in the book, you push back against a lot of common cultural assumptions uh, for instance, uh, the good is to be consu- the good is to be consumed like in the immediate future. The next thing is good, or or right now, I ne- I deserve and should have the good life right now. And you contrast that with more ancient cultures that saw the good as this thing that maybe my life will attain someday. So there was there's there's some sort of formation and virtue that has to draw us towards that telos, towards that goal. So instead of consuming the good, we prepare for the good that may happen or may not. So that's yeah. one thing, that's one shift that you make. And then the other shift that you make is uh, delineating between uh, happiness and joy. And I wonder if you could just talk through one or both of those. as yeah. well, Because I, I want I want listeners to, to get a glimpse of wh- like where, like what, what solutions or direction or orientation are you offering here? Yeah. So, I mean, which, which connects really good, I think, with our, our conversation as we've, as we've analyzed identity. Um, because one of the things mm. not to say is like, well, let's just push identity off the table. No one cares about identity. Like we're still modern people and we really still care about that. Yes. But one of the confused points about identity is that we, like I said, we assume our kid goes into their room and watches a couple YouTube videos and says, this is me, that's just not true. Like the only way you can have an identity is you have to be in dialogue with someone. Identity is always a discourse. No one figures out their identity in their head by themselves. Why for a lot of us, like middle school or junior high is still a haunting experience because it was one of your first times of going out into the world and saying, this is my identity, and then receiving discourse back. And some of it was so, so comfortable you know like we we got ridiculed for those jeans we were wearing or or whatever or that new haircut we got because identity is always a discourse of the conversation now to me this is one of the really important things that that i don't want to necessarily puts us at advantage but is a is maybe an angle to to kind of lean into in within the christian tradition and within the church is that our identities are always built in stories and in narratives that you, when you are in a, an identity crisis, it's because you found the stories that you've been living with no longer work. You yes. know, like the most dramatic example of this is that you have a story that your spouse loves you, and then your spouse tells you they've been having an affair for three years, and you feel like you don't even know who you are because the right. stories that you've been living in to know even yourself all of a sudden 
aren't yeah. what you thought they were, you know? Mm. Um, so this, this puts the church at a certain advantage, even over and against the things, because the things only hold on basketball say when it is narrated, when it has narrative to it. And just because a thing is, it doesn't necessarily have a narrative. This is why most of our garages are filled with all sorts of used sports equipment because a lot of the things don't take. And so right. for us as parents yeah. and as, um, as youth workers and as pastors is instead of focusing on getting kids to show up to the thing, we have to double down on the importance of the story and the narrative. And that of course does mean people need to be present at some point, but it also means helping people really reflect on the depth of who they are, but to be moved out to this bigger story, and particularly this story of the one who has been crucified, resurrected, uh, crucified and resurrected, incarnate, yes. crucified and resurrected, becomes a, a significant piece. And so, instead of trying to just get kids to show up at youth group, what we're really trying to get them to is to tell their own story, and therefore have their identity inside yes. of this story of the one who's been incarnate, crucified, and resurrected. Yes, I, yeah. I want to punctuate this point, Andy, because it's so important. You explicitly state in this book that we have put almost all our eggs in the proposition basket for identity and for formation mm-hmm. of, of of a Christian sort of uh, character. And and I think part and parcel to the, you know, maybe the, the method you use of, of storying parable in the book is to help us encounter our own stories and and sort of um, go deeper than what propositions can do, right? So it's not anti-proposition, but story is how we make sense of the world, and it's how we make meaning, and it's how we understand ourselves and others. And I think it's, man, if, if, if we could just reorient youth ministry as a storied process rather than a fact-data-driven process, I mean, it would revolutionize, I think, what we're doing with our kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and this is the movement into joy because I think yeah. one of there's so many distinctions between happiness and joy, but joy is fundamentally the feeling um the um the, the, the being taken up into a story. Um when mm-hmm. you have an experience of joy, you almost are um in, in compelled to tell the story of it. You almost can't not like you become a preacher, you become an evangelist because you've experienced Hmm. joy where sometimes when you're happy, like you're happy, you got everything you wanted for Christmas. uh, It sometimes becomes really hard. You may still feel happy that you you got when we were talking about the 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 air the the, the AirPods uh, before. Like you may be really <laughs> right. happy you you have AirPods. I mean that's not right. you should you feel shame about that. But if you were yes. to ask me if this podcast was all about narrating my happy experience of having AirPods, it could go about two or three minutes before right. you guys would be sick of me or I would be annoying <laughs> or your listeners right. would be, this guy is the most shallow dude I've ever right. listened to. Like right. it would, in some sense, happiness, particularly that comes from call it propositions or call it from products or something resists a story. There's only so yes. much of a story you can tell, but yeah. joy, like the fact that, you know, my daughter was sick and now she's okay. Or the fact that someone who was lost has been found, like, you know, all these kind of biblical senses of, 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 um, you know, a a son who was, was away and it comes home. It's like, those are experiences of joy. And you Mm -hmm. almost find yourself running to your neighbor's house and saying, I got to tell you what happened to me. 
Like we didn't think this yeah. was going to occur. Like, and you share joy and no one resents you. Like if I was to tell you the story of my, my AirPods, like at some point you'd be like, okay, we're happy for you, dude. Right. Got, we you, get you know, it. They're great. You know, right. It becomes a competition, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. where joy is never that joy is so excessive hmm. that I can actually be pulled into the event of your joy and and feel it and taste it as my own experience. Which in many ways, I think, is what Paul's getting at in his communities and what like the post here at Easter season, like the post-resurrection community is. Like you have a real tangible experience of the resurrected Christ because you live out of the joy of the disciples narrating that experience and living in that story. And that story is so excessive Mm. that Mm. it pulls you in and pulls your person in and continues to like pass on this experience of joy. Um, Wow. What I hear you saying is joy resists the individualized commodification that happiness is like almost perfectly suited for. Exactly. Joy has to be shared. Joy has to be entered into and participated. And it it's not a product. And it's yeah. other than you. It's other. It comes from outside of you. Yeah. Anyway. yeah. Where you yeah. can make yourself happy, you know, but you can't really make yourself joyful. Really. You know, yeah. Yeah. you have to have some kind of articulated story narrative of something outside you that encountered you. Um, which yeah. I think is one of the ways, particularly in a secular age, we can think about transcendence and and mm. think about God's own action is uh, and at least point to manifestations of that still is when yeah. we have these experiences of joy, that there's something from outside of us that yeah. can't be reduced by us that encounters us. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So helpful. Yep. Andy, thanks so much for spending yeah. time with us and for your writing and your work. Um, you mentioned this this third volume in the uh, Secular Age series. When is that set to come out? And can you remind us the title? Yep, it will be out in uh, 2021, and it will. The title of it is uh, "The Congregation in the Secular Age." It's got some subtitle that I can't remember off the top of my head right now, but that's with yeah. Baker too, which this the end of youth ministry clickbait title is with. So they'll be, <laughs> they'll be happy that I mentioned both of them here, and I'll get a yeah. gold star. Yeah, gold yeah. star. Well, I, we heartily recommend these uh, Secular Age this the series, um, and yeah. the a couple books I mentioned to you before the podcast, the relational pastor and yep. children of divorce were so helpful for me. I recommend them all mm. the time. Thanks for your work. Thanks for your time today. How can people connect with you uh, in the virtual world? If uh, they're maybe listening to this podcast and they're going to go consume some happiness online, how can they find you? <laughs> well, they can find me. I have a website just as andrewroot.org. You can find me there. Um, you can find me on that uh cesspool of twitter i'm also on that um so you, you can you can find me there i'm just root andrew and uh you can always email me just google me and you can email me and uh um yeah that'd be great all right. great Andy. Okay. all right thanks so much stay safe peace to you thanks all right friends i hope you enjoyed the interview um yes andrew, andrew root is so uh, incisive um as a observer and a, a commentator um i really enjoy everything he has to uh, has to say. Yes. Um, and as we promised, we're going to answer a question here. Uh, yeah. If you do have, by the way, if you do have a parenting question that you'd like just to answer on the podcast, uh, you can email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Yes, please um, do. Here is today's question. Uh, are you guys going to tackle boundaries? This came in from a friend of the podcast um, mm-hmm. via social media. Mm-hmm. Are you guys going to tackle boundary setting without relying on physical discipline? For the parenting mm-hmm. series. So the physical mm-hmm. discipline there, I'm assuming she means corporal punishments, aka spanking. Mm-hmm. Um, and this person uh, says this, we came into parenting in a uh, 
in an environment that said that sort of this was the only biblical method was to uh, administer corporal punishment to children. We're moving away from that as a paradigm, but still trying to find a positive to the negative, if that makes sense. So it's mm-hmm. it's more than just not uh, not corporal punishment. So what do we do? Yeah. Um, so the only real way to establish boundaries is with the rod, uh, which is Bible speak for aggressive, intentionally painful spanking. Bare bottom, light but stinging, no lasting damage, but it had to break the child's rebellious will. This is the environment that this mm. person is uh, <laughs> saying was the only biblical method in order to be effective. And so there was a lot of reinforcement from Bible verses like no discipline seems pleasant at the time, mm. etc. So they're stepping mm. out of that. Um, but this person says, we've seen that the corrective control tends to really corrupt and damage as well as uh, becoming a paradigm for all discipline and church relationships. So you tend to think about every relationship in this way, that the only way to sort of correct or discipline is to bring about painful uh, sort of uh, punishment uh, for bad things that were done. So anyway, um, that's the question. There's a, there's a bit more, uh, but that's the gist of the question. How, how do, if you're moving away from that, how do you actually set boundaries in a way that that helps children uh, to sort of confront reality and uh, and grow? Get any ideas on that, Matt? Yes, I think. Um, so we do not spank our children. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think that fear of pain is a low level motivator, mm-hmm. meaning it's the it's a basic survival instinct yeah. that you don't need Jesus for. Right. It helps you. It's like one of the, yeah. 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 I mean, if you, if you do believe that we evolved as a species, it's one of the first adaptations we developed in a very primitive mammalian state to stay alive. Mm-hmm. It is not the ethic of the kingdom. Yeah. Right. So you don't need Jesus to teach your kids to fear pain. Yeah. You just need muscles and a hand. Yeah. You just need to be big and they need to be be bigger than them. Yeah. Uh, Two, I don't want to teach my kids to obey out of fear of punishment. I want to teach my kids to obey out of trusting love. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's that's what I was thinking is that all all that that does is modify behavior out of fear of pain which yes. again is a bad motivator. It's a low level motivator. Um, and, yes. and it's, it's only modifying behavior. The, the yes. only reason that you're going to avoid taking the second cookie is because you are afraid that if you get caught, that it will hurt. Um, yes. you're not avoiding taking the second cookie. Like you, it avoids so many of the conversations, especially as children get older that you need to have for them to grow in love. And for them to grow in wisdom, why not take the second cookie? Well, they they need to know why. Why is that a rule? Yes. Like that's yes. that's actually really really important. If your children are going to become wise, for them to know why the rules are there. Why do we have these boundaries? Yes. So right. So yes. Yeah. Right. So that's the second reason. And you know, um, not to proof text this at all, but uh, when I when I say that, like I don't want to teach my kids to fear punishment. Mm-hmm. I want to teach them to trust love. I think of First John four eighteen, right? Yeah, uh, where he says there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Mm. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Yeah. Uh, three, 
most of my kids' bad most of my kids' bad choices come with inherent consequences or punishments tied to those bad choices. So you don't need to add so, to it. So what I need to do then as a parent isn't there isn't so when my kids disobey or make bad choices, it isn't consequence less. There are consequences. There right. are boundaries. Right. Right. But they're tied directly to what they've done. Mm-hmm. Rather than if you lie to me again, I'm gonna make you hurt. Yeah. On your backside. Yep. Right? Yeah. And I think it's it's important. So those consequences can be sort of parentally imposed, right? There can be timeouts, there can be privileges right. taken away, there can be you know, that, right. those, those kinds of things, um, which are ways of setting boundaries. But as much as possible, I think it's really helpful for the consequence to be a natural outworking of the behavior. Yeah. Right? As Can we much give an example possible. of that? Well, I'm, I'm thinking about, you, you mentioned lying, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think one of the consequences of lying is that uh, it's hard for me to trust somebody who, that I know is lying to me. And I, I think that, I've seen that with my kids, when they were younger, I mean, I've got older kids now, and so this, you know, it's not a re- really even a question at this point, um, kind of how to, I mean, the, you know, corporal punishment is off the table for us. Um, mm. But li- lying, if somebody, if one of my kids lies to me, I've found it's actually, it's actually painful to them to realize that they've broken trust with me, that I don't know what to yeah. believe when they say things to me. Yes. And that yes. I want to believe what they say to me. That's what a human relationship is based on. But they've, yes. they've broken that trust. And if I just talk ab- to them about that, and I talk to them about my own like feeling in it, um, I'm, not, I'm trying to, I don't, I don't want to burden them with that necessarily, but I do want them to realize that that's part of the consequence here, is that it's hard yeah, so, for me to believe what you say to me. So I, so I proclaim to them the reality that I want to live in. Yes, I want to, I, live, I want I to trust you. I want I want to believe that when you talk to me, you are telling me the truth, and that I can tell you the truth, and we can be honest with each other. We are made for trust and love, and love can't work without honesty. And then I give them examples, Mm -hmm. like um, if I lie to you the rest of the day, how will you feel? If I tell you bedtime is at nine p.m. and then put you to bed at seven p.m., if I tell you we're going to have your favorite thing for dinner and then we have your least favorite thing. Yeah. If I tell you that um, if you jump off the swing, I'll catch you, and then I don't. Like when I when I lie to you, it hurts you. Yeah. And um, we can't be in relationship if we choose to hurt each other over and over again. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So so uh, it's it's casting vision for a life that's better than lying. Mm-hmm. And then I I proclaim good news to the untruth of the lie. Like yeah. I tell my I tell my kids all the time, it's always safer to tell me the truth. Yeah. Than it is to lie to me. Yeah. And then I purpose to become a safe person who can receive whatever truth, even if I don't like it, is from them. Yes. Right? Yes. So, so if I say that, and then they tell me the truth about something, and I don't like it, and I fly off the handle and give them a spanking, mm-hmm. like, I mean, I'm actually encouraging light. Yeah. Because they associate, like, being caught in a lie with getting yeah. spanked. Yes. <laughs> and then it actually divorces them from the actual consequences of their behavior, because now my problem isn't that I'm lied. My problem is dad's mad. You know, my, my, like I suddenly become my kid's problem rather than them. I, like I, I see my job as a parent is to help my kids run into reality when they're wrong. That's a Dallas Willard quote. Reality is what you run into when you're wrong. 
And I think it's, it's really helpful for, to help our kids run into reality mm. when they're wrong, not to run into yeah. dad's mad when they're wrong. Cause yeah, now I'm, right. now I'm their problem. And I, I, now I've become what they're trying to avoid right. rather than a safe place to go to when they realize that they're, that they're wrong. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, as much as possible, we try to tie the consequences to the activity. So yeah. when there's a lack of trust and I, I, uh, my trust in you is compromised, that means that you are able to enjoy less privileges because mm-hmm. those privileges are based upon trust. Mm-hmm. They're not rights, they're privileges. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, um, so for instance, something we've dealt with recently is, has been like lying about what we're doing on screens. So we'll be saying we're doing schoolwork on screens and then we catch people playing video games on screens mm. instead of schoolwork. Mm-hmm. And so the consequences of that is, well, you have to sit right next to me and do your schoolwork. Yeah. And you can't put in headphones and listen to music because I, I can't trust that what you're listening to isn't a YouTube video talking about your video game. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, they lose uh, freedom. You know, yeah. They lose freedom. Yeah. They lose autonomy. They lose choice. Yeah. Um, and and it's not uh, willy nilly. It's not sort of um, uh, willy nilly is a technical term, Ben. Mm-hmm. Meaning it's it's not sort of out of left field, right. like punishment. Yeah. It's tied. This is why this is happening. Right. And this is how we get back to a place of trust, which mm-hmm. is what we both want. Mm-hmm. Right. So that that's an example. <clears throat> that's an example um, of maybe why we don't corporally punish our kids. And then how do we still bring consequences upon yes. them that fit yes. whatever bad decision they've made? Yes. Yeah. I think that's really important. We, you know, we, our language we use for this in our workshops is that we're parenting in grace and truth. Grace yes. and truth at the same time. We don't choose one or the other. It's not niceness sometimes and toughness sometimes. It's grace and truth mm-hmm. all the way turned up to 11, both of them mm-hmm. at the same time. And I think mm-hmm. I think corporal punishment is just too much of a disconnecting, ungrace-filled activity. Yeah. It, it's yeah. hard to be connected to your child uh, while you're hit, <laughs> while you're hitting them. Um, you know what I mean? And so, but but those other ways of doing it are actually ways where you're calling them into relationship, and and that's filled with boundaries as well. It's filled with truth yeah. about here's what happened yeah. and here's what we need to do now. And so that yeah. that's the point at which I think you know that proof text for spanking. Is, it doesn't necessarily need to be proof text for spanking. Those disciplines no. are painful, right? Yep. That discipline is painful at the time that I don't have the freedom that I wanted. I don't have the trust that yep. my that I've built, you know, with my parents anymore because yep. I lied. Like that is the painful uh, discipline that teaches us wisdom. So yeah. Anyway, yeah. Thanks for the question. Now, oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I just want to say this may spur more questions for you. Yeah. I mean, um, the Old Testament seems to assume that you will use some kind of corporal punishment and a lot of justifications Mm. that I've read by Christians for corporal punishment are primarily tethered to the old Testament, spare the rod, spoil the child, et cetera. If you have questions about that, write us. We'd be happy to chat about it. Yep. um, How that relates to what we're talking about. But with this, we've probably answered this question enough at this point. I think so. Um, This is fun. It's fun to be doing this series. Um, we'll, uh, we'll see you guys next week. Peace. Peace. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. 
Our show is produced by Ben Sternke, Matt Tebby, and Ben Hardman. Aaron Sternke does our mixing and mastering. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. If you find our podcast helpful, share it with your friends in person and on social media. And don't forget to rate and review us online as well as subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free at gravityleadership.com slash join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, make a comment, send us an idea, a recommendation, recipe, whatever. You can email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.